everyone. Welcome back to BYOB Pod. Ben Haynes here with you as ever. Mr. Jack Hussey, how are Hello. you getting on? All good, thank you, Mr. Ben Haynes. How are Be- you? How, how, how are you? Yeah, good. I want to know. I sent you a link earlier on today. Did you watch said link? I didn't. I really wanted to, but I, I, oh, I you're such it. a better person than me. No, I'm not. I really. I'm gonna resist it. it. I just. I, really I was. It was like the the one ring. I just literally couldn't resist. <laughs> it's the precious. So I, there's like a little. I don't know whether I agree with this or not, but I watched it anyway. Um, films are now doing this thing where they leak a scene, where they give a scene to the sort of general populace for you to kind of watch and get you hyped for for a film and. For the new Dune film, there is a six-minute clip that they've made available. It doesn't really give anything away in the storyline, I don't think. But it I is... mean, I watched the last film for three and a bit hours, and it didn't really give much away. <laughs> Still... So, you know. are you going to do a rewatch? <laughs> yeah, I have to. I, I, I... Can I, can, let me. Can I ask you something? Yeah, of what... course, shoot from the lip. What do you What do you think of Dune? What do you make of Dune and the Dune universe? Well, for starters, I like the music and I often find myself trying to uh, do the woman singing it and then yeah. hear myself out loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then hear out loud and I'm just going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is really quite funny. Um, I think the music is amazing. I think the idea is amazing. But I have to say... Oh, this sounds so far up my backside. Having watched Lord of the Rings over the last few weeks, mm. I'm just really aware of how far clear Lord of the Rings is of many of these other sort of, um, what would you call adapted screenplays of source material? Epic fantasies. Yeah. Well. And there's, I've, uh, just very quickly, because I know this is not, obviously not the, the order of play today. I just felt the first one, was doing a lot and it was really hard to know where you were at any given moment. Mm. I found that I did, I'm good, right up front, I'm going to say I liked Dune. I'm looking forward to Dune too. However, I can never escape from this feeling that I want to like it more than I actually like it. That is such a good way of putting it. You know? I want to. I want to sit there and be like, "That was unbelievable." And instead, I think I feel similarly to June. Well, maybe this is a bit harsh. I think I feel similarly towards Avatar. I, li- I was literally going to say that. Very different ways. In yeah, very yeah, different yeah, ways, yeah. but like Avatar is like the kind of colorful, friendly, happy version of Dune. And I, I leave Avatar thinking like, I didn't, I didn't hate that, but I didn't love it. But it was kind of colourful and entertaining. Whereas with Dune, I leave it being like, I didn't love that, but I didn't hate it. I quite liked it. And I quite liked it as kind of brooding. Brooding and moody, yeah. Darkness. Although I kind of find it, I think this is maybe part of my issue of it. I kind of find it a bit depressing yeah it is a bit it's almost melancholic yeah it's quite strange it it, it inhabits that weird dreamscape type almost you know how we talk about like when you see ai images it pokes that horrible little 
bit yeah. in your brain that feels it's not uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the Will Smith eating spaghetti one and stuff that just kind of looks horrible. Um, cause it's, it's there, but not quite. And it's just jarring that, your brain, isn't it? Yeah. That careful it, little bit. Someone, someone who understands this stuff a lot more than I will. I think I spoke about this on, um, X Mac in a pod as well, but I saw this guy basically breaking it down in layman's terms, essentially saying that the way in which your brain generates dreams and nightmares when you're asleep is very similar to the way in which a computer will generate an AI image by no collating, yeah, by collating sort of data from various different sources and ex- like re interpolating it yeah. <laughs> into another and form. I, I hate that. That's because I remember you speaking about this before when you you said about the idea of like, well, I was at home with my sister and I was watching the TV. Only the TV was a giraffe. My sister was my old school teacher and our home was a bouncy castle. And you're like, how the hell does any of that make sense? Even though in your mind, you know what those things were. Has here's a question for you. Another one as we sort of just sail off piece, but I think it's it's good. Has any uh, <laughs> the undying film, land? <laughs> has any film or television series God, I ever nailed slip there on oh well, on camera? Oh, I've just taken my jumper off. Of it. <laughs> it is Super Bowl season, isn't it? I've just done a Janet um, Jackson. <laughs> has any Sorry, film or television series ever nailed dreams or nightmares for you? Inception, loved it. Mm. Inception, Inception for me. The I really, really enjoyed the idea of a dream collapsing because when you're having a dream, it ends. So I've been dreaming loads recently, and I know you and I are quite big on the lucid dreaming chat and stuff. I think it's yeah. so fascinating. Like I absolutely love it, and I do try and train my brain around lucid dreaming. I'm desperate. I had this dream once that I was flying, and I oh, actually I managed it. to do it, and it was. Honestly, it was the most bizarre feeling of bliss, and I, I've, I haven't had it since, and I want to get it back. It's um, so sad when you wake up, isn't it? Oh uh, my god, I, it feels like the end of the film, The Snowman. Yeah, oh, don't you're no, just no, left no, with, don't tell you're me just left with a pile of coal and a carrot and a bit of snow. Yeah, <laughs> for God's sake. Um, uh, but I love the idea in Inception of the like because when a dream ends you start to wake up and you're becoming aware of the fact that you're awake up, but you're waking up, sorry, but it's happening over the course of probably about 20 seconds. But in a dream, it seems like 15 minutes of the dream. Mm -hmm. And I thought that Chris Nolan just got that timing piece. Absolutely incredible. You know that where the world, that the bit where they're walking along the street and there's all these houses that they recognize from different parts of their life, but none of it is in order. They're all mm. just kind of completely of their own creation. I thought Inception was really good. What about you? Is there any that you really liked? Sopranos does it very well. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a little bit too on the nose. I, they they tend to sort of mix up the, it, depending on how prominent a dream features within an episode, there are some um, where the character Big Puss has just been killed and there's like talking fish and stuff. It kind of, it didn't quite nail it, but there are some just random little nightmares that will be dropped in throughout the Sopranos that always left me feeling like, God, they've nailed that. That's really like what a, what some nightmares and stuff are like. Did you like Vanilla Sky? 
I did. I can't really honestly remember it that well, um, but I do remember liking it. There's there's parts of that that I think are outstanding, and there's parts of it that are a little bit like, oh, you've lost me a bit here. But it this sort of basic template yeah. is cool. Do you know what? Vanilla Sky is one of those films that I have seen, but were I to watch it again now, it would almost be like watching it afresh. You know, that I'd is be a like, joy. oh, I, I, I didn't know that bit was coming or whatever. Um, That's really nice. Try to think of it. There was another film that Charlotte and I rewatched not so long ago that we were both like, oh, I think we watched this in the cinema, didn't we? And then we haven't seen it since. We watched it again and we couldn't remember what the. What film was it? I can't. I can't remember. I'll be sat here, sort of umming and ahhing over it. But when the twist came at the end, we were both like, "Oh shit! I forgot that bit happened." I forgot that happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I love it, man. I to be fair, I did have that quite a lot for Lord of the Rings, but particularly Return of the King. King actually, I think there was a lot of this that I'd blocked out from memory. Mm. Anyway, I digress. I've taken us too far ahead because you've been to the cinema a couple of times this week. Hands up here. I haven't been let down, but you've been twice, three times. Twice, yeah. You're prolific at the moment. This is outstanding. Six in two. It? It's the big kind of post-winter lead up to summer, you know, cinema Lots season. coming. There's, there's good stuff going on. There's good stuff going on. Still haven't seen The Zone of Interest yet. Um, yeah, that's one That's one on the list for me as well. Hearing very mixed things about that. but um, Can we do American fiction first? Because I've yeah. been desperate to know. I've literally, since we did the review last week... I've been desperate to know what you made of it. Well, up front, loved it. Loved Jeffrey Wright. Like, he's just, he is top drawer, isn't he? Like, he's absolutely just steals it. He's kind of curmudgeonly. Dry. Yeah, upper middle class pomposity. Do you know what I mean? Of like, God, you know, do I have to spell it out to you? But I'm so above this. You know, yeah, just kind of knowing yeah, yeah. that you are and not wanting to seem like a dick, but the urge to not seem like a dick being less than the urge of seeming like some sort of a cretin. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like it, he, he just, he nails it. He's really, really good at it. I heard uh, he was interviewed on, I think it was Empire's pod. Um, it was really good, really sort of open, frank interview about it. And he was saying that when the director was wanted to you know when they were having their early meetings to to cast him in it he was like look all i can see is you in this role when i was like writing part of it i could hear it and then he said as he was like reading the script he was a bit like hey <laughs> you know, yeah. which, like, which is which is quite good um <laughs> look, i think the the themes the tone of it is like spot on like it's it's so funny it's so brilliant and i mean you know I'm watching this as a white guy. I realise that, but you, you know, I think I think the 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 story in certain parts is fairly universal. And I think you you you're pretty. I, I would say you'd be pretty uh, naive or just ignorant as a as a white person to not kind of be able to pick up on some of these kind of awkward traits that you know white liberal people display when they're kind of misguidedly trying to be doing or saying the right thing and not knowing really what to say and not really realizing actually how kind of othering and shitty that is unto itself, you know, as opposed yeah, to just yeah. being real and being like, Hey, I'm just going to take a back seat here and let you kind of tell me what's going on. 
Like there's some really, really lovely bits in that. I think towards the end, no spoilers, but when uh, Jeffrey Wright's character, when Monk is, he's asked to be part of this um, panel that's judging an award for for like basically best book of the year, kind of like kind of like a book Oscars in a way. Yeah. And uh, he's kind of he's him and the, him and the other characters, woman of color, they're talking about this kind of the black experience and everything like that. And it's just like, they're outnumbered by the white people in the room who are all like, "Mm, you know, I think we all need to take a seat here and just champion this guy's black experience. Hey, do you know what I mean? (laughs) We've done a lot of talk in the past years. It's time to do some listening and you kind of like (laughs) not not seeing the irony of the whole thing. So I, I did love that. There was some lovely little vignettes within the film. I do agree with you in terms of like, as a film start to finish the plot line i think kind of starts to unravel a little bit towards the end it's like they had a a great idea and a great kind of theme that they wanted to delve into and play about with but as a story did it really land it fully i don't think so however i don't really think that was the point of the film i don't think the point of the film was to be like i've watched this story a to b and that's it start middle end and now i now i understand this thing more the film is like like i say it's almost like a, a, a load of little set pieces where you can just cherry pick little bits of insight and interesting little bits from different kind of social settings and you know because there's there's, there's plenty of scenarios in there where it's like you know black person talking to a white person about race issues but then there are scenes where there are say two people of color with completely contrasting opinions on the same matter it's it's you know it's 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 very interesting the way they unpick the multiple layers to this type of discourse and it's but it's all delivered in a in a very because i don't want it to seem like it's too heavy because it's not it's very funny it's, it, it's it, very well handled my gosh the know? humor in it the humour yeah. in it, I, I, a bit that I missed last week. I mean, I, I, you and I have chatted since, but the the, the beach scene um, where Erica Alexander's character has passed away and um, she leaves her final uh, <laughs> remarks and kind of a letter to her family and said, if you're reading this, it's because I'm dead and I'm hoping my passing has been under the heavy thrusts of Idris Elba. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like her mum and everyone there all like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Which is fantastic. Yeah. So funny. There's so many great bits of humour in there. Um, also, the character of Lorraine, Myra Lucretia Taylor, I believe is, is the pronunciation. I'm sorry if I've butchered that. But she she there's some emotional beats in the film that I just wasn't expecting and I just got really just found myself getting really choked up um where she sort of meets someone and then decides to get married and I don't know why but she really got me but I think that's kind of what you're saying right in that there's set pieces within set pieces that you don't even know are happening just about the black experience or about experiences that the characters are having where they meet each other and you just kind of have this nice tangential storyline that just yeah. kind of eases off into the side and then comes back around. It's lovely. And importantly, like what, what plays into it is just the experience, not just as a, you know, not just as the black experience, but of being like a creative, as you were talking about last week, because the whole part of it, like there's a whole section in this when, you know, his books get categorized as like black books kind of thing. Yeah. And he's like, but 
this books have nothing to do with being black. Like, why are you putting them here? <laughs> you know? And they and this like awkward booksellers like, well, I mean, the writer's black. He's like, I know I am the writer. <laughs> Bingo. You know, it's, uh, just, that it's, was it's, brilliant. It's, it's very, very good. And it's very, you know, like you say, I, 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 I really like the, the themes around like just that, that's the self-loathing creative who, knows they have it within their power, within their means to do something that will bang, as we say, that will get numbers, but they don't want to do that. And they're so resentful of when they do do that and it pays off, that it fills you with this just sense of like, God, everyone is a cretin. What am I even doing? You know? But that is it, isn't it? It's like you, you resent yourself for doing those things and you also resent then the audience for yeah. rewarding that yeah. you're like oh for god's sake but it's what they capture quite well is you almost can't help he you can't help the fact that when it does perform you are still kind of like mm. you know you yeah yeah and it. it sort of does some weird kind of thing to you where you're like okay that works and i, I have to say your your missus summed this up perfectly with a uh i think a a post that she put on her story and it basically was a picture of Padme from Star Wars and the meme said when your friends no longer send you links to Instagram reels or reels from Instagram and instead of sending you links to TikToks and it's just a picture of Padme saying you're taking me down a path that I can't follow. was so spot on (laughs) because you know you know when people send me tiktok links i found myself opening them and then about a minute or two later i'm going oh i'm one of them i'm one of them (laughs) i'm gonna get put on a register somewhere yeah do you know what it feels a bit like is that you know in Lord of the Rings where he holds the ball up and then he can't put the ball down? The Palantir, is it? That's what TikTok's like. You sort of hold it up and then you're like, oh my God, I can't turn it off. You need Gandalf to come along and drape his sleeve over it, mate, don't you? Yeah. you know. <laughs> his wizard sleeve. Yeah. What? <laughs> um, right, you've been to Sidwell as well to go and see. Is it Wicked Little Letters? It is, yeah. Um, so Wicked Little Letters... Got a, a little tickety boo to a. I don't know why I said that. Um, Was it a preview? Yeah, a little preview. For, with, henceforth, uh, we'll be known with as with a tickety boo. Friends Odeon. Hey, hello, Odeon. <laughs> friends of the pod, Odeon. We, we've given you so many shout outs now. If anybody from Odeon is watching, a little sponsorship. You know, I'm going to drink this bottle of smart water really overtly as we record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, remember Wayne's World? Um, <laughs> Hashtag ad. So Wicked Little Letters is, uh, as it says at the beginning, a lot more of this is true than you'd think it is. Um, So there's a little story that's been discovered um, by, I'm assuming, the writers or the producers, centering on something called the Littlehampton Letters, set just after the end of the First World War, um, where a kind of let's say the local kind of busybody played by Olivia Coleman going by the name of Edith um, lives at home with her parents, God fearing, 
you can imagine the type, you know, still still stuck in the Victorian era, basically, starts receiving what people would call poison pen letters, full of all manner of lewd profanities, um, calling her a, a fucking old dog that loves a cock up the ass type <laughs> stuff, you know, this kind of really, really to the point stuff. Where Is that verbatim? It's it's to that effect, yeah. A lot of that stuff is kind of it's saying stuff like that. She gets lots of letters over the course of this thing, um, and so she'll there'll be these brilliant moments when she's there in the living room reading these out to her parents, um, played by Timothy Spall and uh, Gemma Jones, and they, you know, these very like I say, God fearing Victorian people, as she's reading out, you fucking cock-sucking old whore and they're all like you know call the vicar we need to get the vicar in to whoever's doing this so they obviously the story revolves around who is sending these letters now they have their suspicions that the person sending these letters is the local um rowdy irish immigrant called rose who is played by jesse buckley um She's, uh, you know, she drinks, she swears, she goes down the pub, she's got a boyfriend and a child who was born out of wedlock. You know, in those days, she was a right regular wrong'un as they saw it. <laughs> so, of course, when you're getting these letters with all manner of profanity through the post, um, of course, all eyes turn to her immediately. Um, so... What happens is, is Olivia Coleman and her family, they end up reporting Rose, Jesse Buckley's character, to the police. And the police, as they do in those days, you would imagine, don't really give it much thought past, okay, well, she fits the bill, so let's just kind of, you know, point the blame at her. Um, other than one police officer, the first woman police officer in the Sussex area, I believe, Gladys, woman woman police officer Gladys Moss, um, as she's called in the film. She just has her suspicions. She, number one, puts to them kind of, uh, you know, where's the evidence? And their rebuke back to her is, look, you're here basically to stop the women getting emotional and to kind of giving them a shoulder to cry on. Leave the, leave the police work to the to the big boys. And there's little things where she doesn't have handcuffs. She can't arrest anybody unless she has the discretion of a male officer alongside her, all these types of things. So what we essentially have is a, 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 a police investigation where Gladys Moss is using all of the powers within her remit as somebody who is supposed... She's an officer that is concerned with the health and well-being of all women within the parish. It's something like that. So within this kind of fairly nebulous remit, she goes down this rabbit hole of investigating these poison pen letters, even though she's been explicitly told not to by her commanding officers. Um, so what we kind of have is a, a story that deals with various different themes it's dealing with the birth of a new world you know post world war 1 um it's showing the fact that not only given the deaths of so many men in world war 1 but also the fact that all the men were at war women were sent into the workplace they were doing jobs they were effectively operating as 
men back, you know, as a society would have deemed it back then. Um, but then when the end of, when the war came to an end, they were supposed to go back to the kitchen and they were supposed to go back to wearing kind of the frilly dresses and being quiet, sit in the corner, listen to what the men tell them to do. And the feeling within society that the toothpaste was firmly out of the tube, that women weren't happy with that and they weren't, they weren't going to have that anymore. Things had changed and there was no going back. So you kind of have that as a theme going along. You have a sense of like general kind of, um, like female empowerment, obviously, but in a very isolated sense as well with a character like Rose, like I say, single mother, has a boyfriend, um, goes to the pub, likes to swear, likes to smoke, all these types of things. Doesn't keep her house completely tidy as, as you know, Olivia Coleman's character at the start says something like, you know, a, a woman with a dirty floor is a whore or something. There was some old ditty that she's got that helped to spell it out where she felt very kind of prudish telling this story. And Jesse Buckley's character's like, what the fuck are you on about? You know? Um, <laughs> uh, so you, you kind of have that. And then you have a, you know, another theme of um, like class structures still and the way in which people of certain classes are still viewed by, or were at that time, at least viewed by the establishment, the type of privileges that they would be bestowed with in order to give them an advantage and the way in which kind of you know working class or people on the lower rung in society are viewed and how thus they are treated within that society um the, the, so like i say there is a lot of play and it, it sounds all very heavy but it's 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 very funny as well the, the script is is sharp it's snappy I know some people often get a bit like eye rolly about a period piece. They often think, oh, you know, I, I don't want to watch all this old fashioned stuff. But I would say in its execution, it's actually very contemporary. Um, it, it feels, you know, it, 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 it's, it's essentially like modern characters within a, within a period setting, if you know what I mean. So it's, it's, don't be put off by that. It's not all, you know, thou art and all this type of stuff. It's post-World War One, you know, um, but still like the, the way in which the characters talk and interact is is very funny and it's very 2024. Um, I really, like up front, I really enjoyed the film. I thought, it was, I did think it was very good fun. Um, I did think it was very funny. I did think it made some pretty, you know, I think it was trying to deal with some pretty heavy subjects and subjects still relevant to today. Um, in a light-hearted and fun fashion. I think my one criticism would come with that, though. Um, a bit of a double-edged sword, but I kind of feel that at times it's... I don't want to say... Nah, maybe I will just say... Maybe I'll just say sometimes I think it tries a little bit too hard to be funny at all times. And... I think that so my prime example of this is sometimes I think that and I'm I'm not saying this from the, from the from the triggered man perspective but I'm saying that I think sometimes the sexism and the way it's written is sometimes a little bit too unsubtle that it comes across a bit clownish and thus it almost reduces the impact of of that sexism, of the the way it limited women's lives, women's opportunities, even kind of women in successful, important positions of power, such as police officers, were still diminished. But because it's all dealt with, 
in it's all dealt in a very irreverent comedic fashion sometimes i think it lessens the impact of that just a little bit and i know that sounds really nitpicky um because the film is it is trying to be accessible it is trying to be funny and it is trying to carry like i say this serious message but keep it lighthearted and keep it an entertaining film at the end of the day without being this kind of big preachy thing um which i think it does it, it does generally succeed in doing um but like i say just sometimes it, it, it they could have just taken it down just a little notch um with some of those bits i feel and it, it could have maybe sort of made uh made more of a point but yeah again you know i'm, I'm not going to go on a big brexit rant again about the british film industry but get to the cinema watch it and uh you'll enjoy it i think it's it's, it's good fun and you uh stand up performer uh, Jesse Buckley, I would say. I think Jesse Buckley is is particularly brilliant in this. I'm I'm a really big, real big fan of hers. Actually, I do I do think she's brilliant. And I I actually I, do you know what? I would say I'll, I'll confess to this. I had no idea she was Irish before I before I saw this film. No, me either. Like no, I actually I, I, thought when I was watching it a little bit, I was kind of like, I do like Jesse Buckley, but the Irish accent's a bit ropey. And then. <laughs> When I looked up after, it's like, oh, he's actually Irish. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Where she picked up that from. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed, I have to say, I really enjoyed the trailer. I thought the trailer was done very well. It made me, when I was at the, when I was at the cinema last week, it made me immediately think, I think I'll enjoy that. There's a sort of, yeah. um, there's a moment in it where uh, Jessie Buckley and her daughter return home and someone's written die whore on her front door. And she goes, no, oh, it's German. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was amazing. I was so clever. Um, should we go on to this week's film? Oh, I think we're ready. I think we're ready. Um, one, so, one final foray into Middle Earth, Ben. Are you ready? Have you got your Latin spread packed? Yeah, I'm actually a little bit sad. So am I. I was, it was really strange watching back. So the film this week is Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Um, and uh, it goes without saying, I mean, we obviously had to do this because we'd done Two Towers and Fellowship of the Ring, the previous two episodes alongside some of the other reviews that we'd done. Um, but it was really weird when it got to the last 45 minutes of this film. I was like, oh, I'm actually... I, this I've been watching it over the course of the last three or four weeks. It's been a really welcome addition to my week having this in there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it has nice. been because you know what? Like alongside this, as I've been going on about, I have been listening to that big Tolkien biography on uh, Audible, and that just came to an end this week as well. Like oh. I've, I've been getting through it on like you know walks and all that type of thing when i've been driving to isn't the shop that stuff. isn't that one of life's real cruelties when you find something like a, a podcast series or something like that and you think this is brilliant and, and then it becomes your companion for every little sort of five or ten minute whatnot task that you're doing yeah. yeah that you're kind of like I often find that I'll just forgive me while I blow a little bit of smoke up your bunda here. <laughs> um, but I often find that with your, with your pods that you do about Spurs is that I'll often, if I don't finish your post-match review podcast, 
I'm really delighted to know that, oh, the next car journey or the next gym session or the next time I'm just walking somewhere, I'm like, right, I'll get on to the rest of that. And it, it, I, I had it as well with um, the, a, a series called The Coming Storm, uh, which I've, I remember you sending me that. It, oh, my God. It, I, I think it's, it's maybe about Capitol a, Hill and everything, right? Yeah, but it, and... but but it's it, it's kind of the nine. It basically goes from around the early nineties up and and shows how all these little bits of life have that we've experienced over the last twenty odd years or whatever thirty years have led to the point that we're at now, where news is lost a little bit, and it's really hard to actually make a concrete argument about anything because it's easier to be a pissant or an influencer who just goes no 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 that's not true and then everyone goes oh, okay cool and it's not true apparently mm. instead of actually trying to prove anything or make valuable and well-researched arguments um but it, uh, that that series is is amazing and i got to the end of it and i was just like wow this sucks it's a limited run series thing and it's come to an end and i now i'm not going to be able to enjoy it, 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 it just do, everywhere do you know, that i am know- it, it made sense, obviously, but the uh, <clears throat> so, so the, the the biography it it just ended on Tolkien's death, and like it's I can't remember who it's narrated by, but he's he's a very softly spoken, well spoken guy, and he's just he's essentially making this point. He's saying that you know Tolkien went down on this date to visit some friends in Bournemouth. They had a nice meal. They enjoyed some glasses of wine, and he went to bed. And then woke up in the night with severe stomach pains. He was rushed to hospital where they discovered he had an ulcer. Um, they managed to get the ulcer under control. But while he was in hospital, he picked up a chest infection. And he went to bed that night. And then in the night, peacefully, he died. And then it just ends. I was just like, what? <laughs> No, <laughs> yeah. no. And then they, they did do a little like, um, what do you call it at the end? Like a little, yeah, where he was essentially just saying that like, and they, they kind of made this quite interesting point because part of the biography was talking about the fact that, you know, many writers, many famous authors and things around the time when they went to, I can't remember who it was. There was one in particular, um, big like, World War One, World War Two author, an American, who um they went to visit Tolkien, and then when he went back and wrote in I think the New York Times about his experience of visiting Tolkien, Tolkien who was really taking off in America at the time, Lord of the Rings really really took off in America, oh, um, did way it? more than it did in the UK, yeah, yeah, oh, like, wow. huge huge in America, and uh, he he basically said like oh he lived in a drab little ugly house Tolkien and Tolkien took real umbrage to that. He wrote him like a real, you know, like real kind of letter being like, how how rude of you, to, me to show you hosp- hospitality and for you to say something like that about me. I'm a human being kind of at the end of the day. Like, how dare you? I thought we were, you know, fellow academics and good friends and, I, you know, whatever. He was a bit like that. But then they ended up being, like, I think once he said his piece, they were then all right about it because then they just carried on talking about, like, their different bits of work and stuff. But... It was essentially because, you know, Tolkien, like he lived, even though he was a pretty rich man by the end of his life, he lived um, a pretty unspectacular life. He had a little house in suburbia. He was a creature of habit. He liked, 
he liked what he liked. He wasn't really that bothered about the finer things in life and all that type of stuff. He was just a man that was wedded to his work, to the languages, to the, you know, the kind of old English folklore and all this type of thing. Um, and they were, they were essentially making this point in the, in the, in the ending of the biography where they were saying like, you know, all these base, all these different fellows, he was in this little kind of the inklings they were called this little group of academics, CS Lewis being one of the, one of the inklings, um, just some like, you know, some fellow scholars, fellow Christian men who were, they had this little shared space essentially where they would talk about the different things that they're working on writing and all this sort of thing. And the narrator was just saying, you know, if you go to the grave of CS Lewis, it's a, it's a pretty ornate thing. It's got like some of his quotes etched onto it, all this type of thing in a nice kind of big grand cemetery. Whereas with Tolkien, it's like in the back of this, like his local parish, a little Catholic church, around the back of it, no thrills, nothing like that. There's just a little grey standard headstone that has his name on it, has his wife's name on it, and they're saying, like, in death, he's pretty much how he was in his life. He let his work do the talking. It was never really about him. It wasn't about that. His sort of gift to the world was his life, and that's why people were always so underwhelmed when they met him. People almost – one of the questions was, how could a man – who is seemingly this average have such an imagination and birth this world that he did. And, you know, I I guess there's no, there's no real answer to that other than that we still, I guess, have our own expectations as a society about what type of people do, what types of things or think in certain ways when, you know, it's usually just people who just get on with it, who, surprise people i don't know i I haven't really made my point very coherent no but it's you know a wonderful little addition to that just as you were saying that i just looked i thought that's so fascinating the inklings sort of the idea of being part of a a group where your peers you sort of look around and nod at each other like you're very impressive yeah yeah you're very impressive as well we're all very impressive but but equally, but then equally you're shitting on each other as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they used to meet in the pub, the Eagle and Child pub in Oxford, where they met informally on Tuesday mornings during term time. That is so spot on for what you're saying. You know, that these huge minds that you could just be walking through the pub and grab a pint and you've got some of the greatest minds of your time just sitting, having a beer, just dunking on each other's work and stuff. You know, that's it, just... Well, an interesting one on that, Tolkien hated narnia he hated it he <laughs> thought it was he was like on, on record sort of he felt it was so number one he felt it was like beneath c.s lewis he thought writing these silly children's books but a lot of people also had suspicions that because c.s lewis was apparently always very interested in either time travel or outer space travel and then suddenly after tolkien had written the hobbit c.s lewis suddenly started writing all these fantasy things so tolkien in a way was like you're kind of stealing my idea in a way. You're sort of because fantasy as well wasn't as much of a thing then. They these guys were like the pioneers of it, right? Um, have you read Have you read the the kind of Lion Witch and the Wardrobe 
series. Chron- know, they, yeah. Is it the Chronicles of Narnia? You would call I think that. So yeah, Lion Witch and Wardrobe. Seven. The first one, isn't there? Yeah, the seven. And he wrote. So this this was kind of part of people reckoned it was part of Tolkien's jealousy. He wrote one a year. He wrote all seven in seven years. C.S. Lewis. He wow. churned them out. Whereas Tolkien, it took him like a decade to get the Lord of the Rings done because he just procrastinated so much and he'd start writing that but then disappear down another wormhole and start putting more time into writing the similarian which nobody wanted to publish and he wasn't even sure he wanted to have published but then really wanted to get it published because other people said it was unpublishable he he, you know he was he was a very he was an enigmatic character (laughs) Um, but you kind of get where all that you, you that helps you really understand where all these really the minutiae the the tiny little bits and pieces that make it what it is come from you know the yeah. idea that you might be halfway through something you just disappear off to draw another map or create another language or 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 the or the folklore of your creation oh, as you were asking the other week as well he did draw a lot of the maps and a lot of the stuff he was actually oh, really? a, he was a very accomplished artist as well Tolkien um see that is really he didn't cool. think he was um because it's quite distinct the the look of middle earth isn't it the way that they've drawn yeah. the mountains it's quite a nice sort of yeah. it's almost there's like a, a almost a calligraphy to the to the maps which is really really cool Christopher his son who I think oversees the estate now um who's added various different bits i think he got the similarian published and stuff he uh did some of the artwork as well well this is going to be my next question to you what did what what happens then because the intellectual property must be worth hundreds of millions of pounds yeah if not billions yeah so is his son sort of i guess son and heir vibes the person who takes it all I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how this stuff works. Um, I know that like through kind of my own sort of professional experience and like from those around me who work in similar fields who have worked on properties like Roald Dahl or Paddington Bear and all this type of thing, there is generally somebody attached to the estate um, who works in tandem with PR people, publishers, various different people that have a a vested stake in the maintenance of the legacy of the work, where it goes. I can imagine getting the Rings of Power made has been a very long and difficult process. From what I understand, it's all largely based on stories and ideas taken from the similar similar i don't know if i'm pronouncing it correctly or not but i'm just going to keep saying the similarian which is the tome that tolkien first i think i want to say he started creating that before he even wrote the hobbit um which was essentially because he'd written various different languages like i say he wanted to also write a mythology a folklore um, and that's kind of what the similarian was. It was just, it was Middle Earth. It was the creation of Middle Earth. It was, where did the elves come from? Who is the creating force? Who is who is the devil in Middle Earth? It turns out to be a character called Melkor, who then goes on to be, when he assumes a human form, Morgoth, who is like Sauron's tutor in a way, 
Um, and it's, it spells out all this type of stuff, all these stories, because he's got the difference. So Lord, the Lord of the Rings is set in the fourth age, I want third to say. Age. Third age. Okay, so it's the third age. Um, that's right. And it was the new shadow that he started to write. But do you want to talk about that now or do you want to save that? Let's save that because I want to ask that at the end because okay. I've got I want to sort of intertwine that a little bit with Peter Jackson as well because yeah. I think there is a, an interesting crossover there. Do you want to really quickly because I I did it last week? Do you want to just set us up where we were at the end of people will have seen it, but just in case you haven't watched the film, we finished up with Two Towers last week. Do you want to quickly whiz us up to speed with where we are going in Return of the King? Yeah, sure. So we've obviously we've had. Saruman's demise, Isengard has been, you know, Isengard has fallen, essentially. The Ents have seen out. Sauron's forces have been destroyed at Helm's Deep. They've either been destroyed or they've routed from the battlefield. Um, so you, you would say that the forces of evil are seemingly on the back foot. Sam and Frodo have just made their way into Mordor and they are now, you know, they've got their eyes on the prize. They've got their eyes on Mount Doom. Um, and it's not going to be easy, but they're, they're, they're going to be there to throw, cast the ring into the fires of Mount Doom and destroy it once and for all if they can get past Sauron's eye that's, you know, keeping a watchful eye <laughs> over, over proceedings. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of where we were, isn't it? At the end of, yeah. And we've got a similar sort of vibe in that we have this split off in that the different groups still have their, their things to do. I always quite like it that do you know what? it reminds me a little bit um, of go with me on this ridiculous analogy. But you know, when you go with a group of mates to a festival and then you just go off on like side quests yeah, <laughs> to yeah. see bands and stuff. Well, and then somebody, some... somebody wants to go and see like a DJ, but someone else is like, no, I want to go and watch, you know, whoever, you know, Rick Astley or something. You know? <laughs> I need to see Rick Astley covering the Smiths. So I'm going to go and take yeah. myself up over yeah. there. But you go and watch Fred again, 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 again. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then someone else is going, well, I'm going to the main stage. And everyone goes off on their little side quest. No one's got any signal. And then suddenly you're like half cut, just see someone buy a kebab van. And you're, yeah, like, and you're yes! like, yes. Oh, my God. That is exactly How what has I this wanted. Happened? Yeah, and you sort of like cross paths again at a really mental point and then sort of slowly come back together. And it does feel a little bit like this at the start of Return of the King and that we kind of got the group together again, um, only to then obviously be split off on their own, own sort of different directions, which we'll go into. But at the heart of this film, really, we, we had a bit of a discussion um, before we did the pod, and I think we both sort of landed on the same page. This is Frodo and Sam, really, isn't it? This film is 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 their film. Yeah, I think it is. With, this one. with the exception of Gollum, I have to say, Gollum was like really in in um, the Two Towers. You're given this interesting experience as a viewer, where you watch a character have some redeemable features, and then other parts of it that are just outright horrible. Gollum, there is nothing redeeming about Gollum in this. From no, the moment he's, they he's sort of... He's vile, dis- isn't he? He's vile bastard. and you really are like, Sam was right, Frodo, you silly little prick. Like, why didn't you <laughs> listen to him? Why didn't you listen to him? Gollum's so Smeagol, so clearly horrible, you know? And he is, like you say, he's he's despicable in this one, isn't he? Conniving. Like, yeah. 
horrible, really horrible. horribly spirited. But um, there, there's so many little touch points throughout this film. Um, you spoke before. I'm, I'm probably jumping a bit ahead here, but you spoke before about Tolkien not liking allegory and metaphor. Mm. But there's this feels there is so much crossover here when you watch things like saving private ryan or band of brothers or the pacific or hacksaw ridge hacksaw ridge is a great example of this just even the silhouette of sam and frodo in so many scenes reminds you so much of films that have covered both world war one and, and world war two i mean I, I, and i guess the thing is that whether or not tolkien's intending this to be allegorical he's still going to have been influenced by the things that he's seen, the things that he's experienced. And even if it's subconscious, that will be reflected on the page because you can, as you say, you can quite clearly see the links to World War One, especially in something like Lord of the Rings, the kind of the, the, the brotherhood, the in the trenches feel of it, um, where, you know, somebody like Sam, is just trying to keep the spirits high. Keep he knows he knows as much as anybody how you know hopeless their task is, how miserable it is. But what's the point of moping about it? Let's get on with it and let's take it to him. Let's see what we can do, kind of thing. Um, he, he definitely asserts himself within this film. I, it kind of came to me as you you get into the last. I mean, I, I had one of the things I'd forgotten is that the story really kind of ends 45 minutes out for everyone else. We, we, I was looking at the, the timing of it. And I was like, right, we're two hours, 15 minutes into a three-hour film. And everyone else's arc is pretty much over. Like, I mean, dare I say, dare I say, mate, like even like Aragon, Legolas and Gimli in this film are just kind of side characters. They don't really do anything, do they? Considering it's called Lord, like the Return of the King, they just kind of like bun it off in the first sort of act, and they're like, "Yeah, we're just going to go and like go to the mountains and talk to like all the zombies later." And while they're at that, this really crucial time as well, yeah, they just sort of disappear kind of up. Just, yeah, they just sort of disappear and. You know, you get a few little scenes of them like throwing back and forward, but as you say, this is this is Sam and Frodo's film, isn't it? Um, and I guess I mean I don't know if we're gonna if we're gonna jump ahead in too much into fine wine or war crime, but in some ways, I think as a standalone movie, the film kind of um, it's most pronounced in this one, the back and forward. Because I think in both Fellowship and in The Two Towers, switching between the two subplots works. I think out of all of them, I left this one. And I, I felt it at the time, and I probably felt it in an even more pronounced fashion now because of the recency to it and because I guess we're looking at it through a more analytical lens as opposed to one of just enjoying it. I felt that the kind of the plot A and plot B was least successfully implemented in this film. Does that feel harsh? No, no, no. I, the, the, my biggest takeaway, and at the risk of 
taking a, a dookie on what is one of my favorite film trilogies of all time. My biggest takeaway from this is that it felt like in the two towers, there wasn't a single bit of it where you felt like anyone's phoned any of this in. I probably could, I could take out 10 to 15 minute chunks where I was a bit like, come on lads. We've, we, we've kind of just not really explained that bit and just launched it in, you know? Mm. Um, and, and thankfully I think, Sean Astin, Astin, that's right, isn't it? Not Austin, Astin. Um, thankfully, I feel like his performance really, really is the heart of the film. Uh, you are really seeing every last ounce of the effort they're going to to get to the end and really drive forward to the end. I think. Do you know what I will say as well? I think kind of as a slight aside, I think Merry and Pippin storyline, and this is actually very good as well. Yeah. I feel like that, again, the, the Hobbits are the heart of this, really. You kind of see it at the end when Aragorn's like, no, you don't bow to anyone. We kind of bow to you as the four of them come back together. You're, so I think I kind of like the fact that we are back with this group of four that really the, the smallest people have the biggest hearts and have had the biggest role to play, really. Because, I mean, um, uh, Merry, is it Merry or Pippin, who ends up uh, lighting the the beacons of Gondor that then spread throughout the mountains, which is an unbelievable sequence, by the way. I mean, that is so incredible. It's class, isn't it? Ah, it's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. But both of those characters end up having a really nice, they have a really nice role to play. They, they they definitely sort of weave into the story. I think you're right, though, because in the two towers in the Fellowship of the Ring, I feel like Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, they really have a purpose. In this, it kind of feels like they just are there going through the motions and we're all just holding fire. I, I, I also thought the ending was really baggy that wasn't a pun but it is it is <laughs> it is very much kind of you don't know where you are with it with the exception of frodo and sam that's the only thread that you're like right they've got to go and get this done and and finish this job um so yeah it was it, it was it was interesting what's uh Look, let's 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 rag on this a little bit more whilst we're in this kind of uh <laughs> and another thing I've got, I've, can I <sighs> just launch into it? Go on, we'll, we'll riff away like we always do. The so, in the books, from what I understand, right, the final battle outside Gondor, you know, it's, it's going to be it's, it's hard to kind of have this big heroic battle after you've just had Helm's Deep, right? So, I get it, it's kind of a it's a tough act to follow. Um, and I, I think it really was, even though it's supposed to be massive, this massive, huge battle, it felt infinitely less epic. And I can't really put my finger on why. Um, it didn't feel like the stakes were as high. And what really sort of compounded that for me was the way in which they used the army of the dead in this one. 
Um, because you've kind of built up to, from what I understand in the book, the dead could not hurt the living. They couldn't do that. What they did is they, they attacked from the rear and their ability was to scare off. They scared off a large chunk of the forces of Mordor. But in this, the way they basically just consume the whole battlefield like a massive kind of plague of locusts, essentially killing everyone, you're kind of just like, oh, well, I guess that's, that's one way to end it then. You know, that, that, that side of the B story where it almost sort of uh, left me ending, like left me feeling like, did you even really need to focus on that as much? I don't know. You know, did did we really need to? I, I, I just felt that bit where they just came off the ship. I was like, oh, that was a kind of an unpleasant surprise for me where they all sort of yeah. just flooded through and just destroyed everything. It was like, right, we're all good. And it felt, I think with, with the thing with Helm's Deep is that it was all so, so dark and grungy and and horrible that you really felt it whereas with this it, it, it kind of i don't know you did, like you said they didn't feel the stakes were high enough you sort of felt like gondor was just being destroyed and the king's just about to commit suicide with his son and they're back inside the keep again you know like, oh okay i thought the elephants were quite a nice touch but then again this is something that we've spoken about in other films and that if you if you just up the stakes really easily it doesn't mean as much if you've got elephants they're just smashing like a hundred people at a time it it, it suddenly doesn't you, you there's no jeopardy so you don't feel it in the same way with helm's deep every time the orcs made a breakthrough you were like <gasps> oh no this could be the end you know you've got to cling on for dear life yeah you're absolutely clinging on it didn't feel like that in this film and then they just kind of all these undead people just rock up and kill everyone part of it's like because they did the whole section of lighting the beacons it's like okay so the whole world of men is now united the beacons have been lit they're all going to come together under one banner but aside from the actual sequence of the beacons lighting which as you say is fantastic you don't really get that feel on the ground that this is arm in arm we're all fighting together we have to this is our last hour we all have to corral together to defeat this this evil enemy. It's just suddenly like the beacons have been lit, and then there's just a massive army now, and they're all just going. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you didn't and it could, that it on the ground. could have been that for me. Should be that whole. It should be that whole thing of different people coming from different ends of the earth to be like, right, it's good versus evil, and we've got to fall down on the right side. Exactly. And you don't really get that. Instead, you kind of get a bit of a cheat code in that Aragorn's just nipped into the nipped into the cave. I will say though, I thought I thought it was a nice sequence where Pippin is singing the song. And Yeah, that is nice. It's and quite sad, kind of, isn't it? Yeah, and you're just seeing them all that just get destroyed. And I think that's a really important that's a really important I, I it almost has charge of the light brigade kind of connotations there as well and and and, and a lot around again like a king just sending out a load of people on horseback off you go go and show that you're really men so like, well we're all gonna die so like, yeah we'll <laughs> come back on your come back on your shield then cool 
But it's and even Gandalf's like, you don't have to go out. That's that's mental. But they have to do it anyway, and that has a lot of sort of um, crossover with with World War One and trench warfare. Uh, and I did think that the kind of the Gondor stuff, the idea of things just sort of falling apart because someone in charge was too weak to actually s- step up and do something. I thought that was really fascinating as well. Mm. Um, can we go back a bit? I I loved your kind of question, did Frodo fail? And I'll, I very much come down on one side of this, but where did you come down on this? <sighs> it's tough, isn't it? I guess, ultimately speaking, you might see it that he did. However... As Gandalf always makes the point that this is all one big tapestry, this is all one big kind of cosmic ballet that's taking place. Frodo has brought, he's fought so hard to bring the ring to this place. He's also kept Gollum on side. He's not allowed Sam to get rid of Gollum when he's wanted to, to kill Gollum or to otherwise leave him to die. Um, as Sam suggested, and without that, the ring may not have been destroyed as well. So it's That's such a good point. It's all in big balance, uh... but yeah, on an individual level, he he kind of did, didn't he? And it shows you that real corrupting power of Sauron of the ring. You know, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Well, and also just the corrupting power of evil. Full stop. Yeah, you know, even power. that idea. You just you get so close to doing the right thing, and sometimes people just don't. And and Sam's face just he's just crushed by that that idea. And you're you're almost sitting there seething for Sam. So like he's carried you here. He's literally gone all the way through. He's rescued you from a massive horrible spider. <laughs> you saved your life multiple times and now you're like no i'll just head it's on back mine. down and it, uh, and then the bit of golem sort of chews his finger off yeah absolutely horrible um w- what about the we kind of haven't really touched this over the course of the last few pods but the ring itself have you given that any thought about what it is at the end of three films, what what Tolkien's kind of getting at with that? I think obviously it's uh, it's a token, isn't it? It's an it's an emblem of a theme, and that theme is ultimate power. Um, and for me, what I take from it really is that the whole thing is a piece about, as we're sort of talking about there with Frodo, the the corrupting force that absolute power can bring that some people are interested in that and some people aren't it may be just in some people and it isn't in others people like Samwise Ganji he's not corrupted by it because he doesn't he doesn't yearn for that he doesn't yearn for power he doesn't yearn for control it's almost like we hold it up as a noble a noble trait of Sam's but it's just how he is but anybody with a bit of ambition anybody with a bit with an idea of you know, not always about being some malevolent overlord, but of having the power to make things better even, still gets corrupted by the sense of having something that could allow them to 
to control. And obviously, you know, the closest example to that nowadays is money, is having a, is having a lot of money. Um, gold, I guess the ring is gold. There's, there's, there's something in that. Um, but it's more about, it's not so much about material wealth. It's, it is about influence and power yeah yeah. power influence all that all that type of thing and i think they they deal with it in in many different ways in the in the in the in the course this like i say i think there are people who covet the ring for who have good intentions like i don't i don't think boromir was a bad guy as such but he saw that he saw the world in his own vision and he wanted to use the the ring to to kind of to to use that as as a means of control. And again, I know I know Tolkien isn't a big fan of allegory, but I can't help but feel that there's a sense of like the Garden of Eden in in here somewhere. Sauron being the snake, the the ring being the apple. You know, everybody being tempted by it. Um, everybody I did be think, kind of. I I I, I definitely was. Uh, I thought about it potentially as, as wealth as well, because I thought it was really fascinating that the entire structure around Sauron comes crumbling down once there's no longer belief in the system. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, I know that's sort of very, I'm really tethering that. It's a bit of a Hail Mary shot, but no, they, they throw the ring into the, the flames. The, every. I thought that was so telling that everyone runs away. You know, everyone deserts it. No no one's sticking around once the bully's not around anymore, you know, and it's then suddenly the whole thing falls apart. And that was very allegorical because there was no need for everything was made out of stone. So why is is it all fallen down? And, And I thought that what that was trying to say is that ultimately a lot of the bad things are held together by bad will and mm. a, a, a lot of the things that we dislike are held together by the people that are actually causing the most damage are the people that are um uh, facilitating or, or providing a gateway to others to, to to for other people to act in bad faith and that once really once the once the kind of I guess the, the sort of key actors or the key bad actors disappear very quickly. You see how people around those who are not particularly nice people will flee the scene immediately. You know, they just kind of mm. feel that the gravity of being around powerful people. I'm not sure if I actually believe in what you're doing, but I quite like that you're powerful. I quite like that you have influence. I quite like that you have some control over things. So, yeah, I'm there for the ride. And then suddenly, as soon as the as soon as the big boy's gone, it's, it, everyone's gone. You know, the whole thing falls down. And I do think that really, really, that there's a lot of crossover with just kind of culture now, modern day culture, in terms of a lot of things are made of air, and they're propped up by kind of things like presenteeism they're propped up by people sort of reinforcing self-fulfilling prophecies things like that the whole thing is built on oh yeah no this is this is this is the thing this is the thing 
And then suddenly the moment people are shown up for, for what they really are, shown up to be bad actors or shown up to be people that don't necessarily have a lot of real sort of good heart and good intention at the core of what they do, people flee very quickly. And I thought that was a really intentional thing that Peter Jackson's done, you know, because everything falls apart. As soon as the ring goes in, everything falls apart with the exception of where all the good guys are standing. Yeah. Suddenly there's sort of this sort of like fault line that comes through and everything falls around them. It's like it was a, it was a little on the nose, wasn't it? But you can kind of forgive this for that. You yeah. just kind of think, yeah, I'm here for it. It's fine. Yeah, but that, that, see, this is the, the, this is the tough thing that I had with this film in that there's so much in there that I just loved. But I felt like a lot of the a lot of the last sequences were almost like a dream sequence. Yeah. A lot. So you have that idea of of um, Sam and Frodo, Merry and Pippin, all kind of doing their weird kind of um, ye olden days version of uh, the homoerotic Top Gun volleyball sequence, as they all kind of <laughs> climb in bed together and jump yeah. in one by one. They're all kind of like laughing and bouncing around, and it's all a little it's cheesy. That isn't it? It's really camp. It reminded me of Panto. All the characters coming around the door to sort of take their individual and, bow. And, 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 like, and Frodo doing his. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes Widow Twanky around the corner. Yeah. yeah. And sort of Gimli in the background. Um, but I yes, think that's, but, do you know what that, do you know what a bit of that is? You know how I sort of touched on it before. Some of that is like the Peter, the side of Peter Jackson's directing that I, I don't like as much. Like, and those things, they do stick out for me a little bit. You know how I was saying at the start when you see like Boromir getting hit by the arrows and they keep doing a cut to Boromir, cut back to the Hobbits, cut to Boromir, cut back to the Hobbits, slow yeah, motion yeah. reaction, slow, slow motion reaction. Like it's kind of sometimes I think like he's, he's, he's great at doing the action. He's great at doing the comedy. He's great at doing like the gory, weird bits. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his other films. He made a film called Brain Dead, which is... One of the no, most, it's one of the most horrible macabre films I think I've ever seen. Um, fairly low budget, uh, Kiwi zombie film. Um, real, real B movie, real kind of video nasty vibe to it. Um, really? Which, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite funny in a way. It's, it's funny in the way that like the sort of evil dead films are, but it's also, it's just, it's, it's bloody horrible as well. Um, is it? It's a really huge pet peeve of mine, though, that that thing that you just said, the idea of doing that slow motion cut back from one person to the other, doing like multiple reactions at once, but then leaving the audio bubbling underneath. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, Sam. Oh I, I kind of, gosh, I feel like God Peter God. Jackson, you know, when he does this, like <laughs> tries to do the sentimental parts, he's almost like, I don't like this stuff. So uh, what, <laughs> yeah, have what it. do other people, yeah. What do people like? What <laughs> Emotions okay. for dummies. <laughs> yeah. So he's almost like cherry pick the most TV movie esque maudlin mawkish kind of ways of conveying yeah, sentiment yeah. on the screen. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because, well, that's because we so not him. We go through a sequence of it. We go, this is one of the things, sorry, I, it sounds like I'm dunking on this film. This film is amazing, no, no. by the way. Like, no, we've got plenty to talk about on the good side of this film. So yeah. yeah, totally. So one of the things that kind of jumps out at me is that I, I sort of wrote a couple of these, a couple of these little missteps. The undead returning, which we've gone over, and then they sort of come in, destroy everything, disappear. 
We then have the Eagles just rocking up. Oh, look, the Eagles are here. That's fantastic. But to my mind, we haven't seen an Eagle since Two Towers. Is that right? And there was one. Yeah. And then, oh, look, bloody brought the Eagles. No, since Fellowship. Fellowship, Fellowship, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, oh, well, that's that's a relief that he's just summoned them last minute. Um, And then, yeah, we have that kind of very camp. Go on. You know, there's a good story with um, Tolkien when he was he was basically sat in a in a cafe in Oxford, Oxford or Cambridge, one of wherever it was, say Oxbridge, um, and somebody came up to him and was like, "Really like the uh, really like the stories, Ronald." But um, I just want to ask you, like, why didn't the Eagles just take them in the first place to Mount Doom? And he, he his response to him was, "Oh, do shut up." <laughs> <laughs> so he's a very, very proper Englishman. Yeah, that would have been um, that would have been bloody convenient. That well, they I do were, have a theory that... on this, though. I do, I do. If you, if oh, dear, you I'd love it. to hear. Go on, go on. Look, basically, like I say, Gandalf, Saruman, Sauron—they're all these angelic stroke demonic beings right sauron is almost kind of like the fallen angel he's almost kind of like a satan figure in a way but they are all these angelic figures they're all and yes they assume a human form when they're down on earth but they all realize that they are part of this like i say this big kind of cosmic opera right that whether or not kind of Sauron gets the ring of power, whether or not he manages to exert control over middle earth, the creator force, the God in this world is still completely in control and cannot be toppled that this whole thing is basically, it's like a, it's like a a scenario that they're playing out where it's like, okay, let's create the circuit. Let's create a situation that can test the will of, man, elf, dwarf, all of them, to see if they have the fight and the spirit to overcome the odds, right? So Gandalf, it's it's not about... Because to him, he knows what lies beyond. He knows that when they all die, they are going to go on to a better place and it's going to be fine. It's all going to be okay. His objective here is not to just fly them with the ring and drop it into Mount Doom because that's contrary to what this whole test is. The test is to see if the smallest, most unlikely being, a hobbit, could take on this unimaginably tough task and save the day. And they're like, yeah, they did. Great. They did it. And now now I'll send the eagles in to fly him home. So he's done the hard bit. He's proved himself. I do like that. And I do, I do definitely agree that you sort of see within this film as well, Gandalf just nudges people in the right direction so yeah. many times. He just sort of nudges people. The bit with Pippin where he talks about death, death isn't the end. It's just the next, the start of the next adventure sort of thing. And then Pippin sort of sits there and goes, okay, I like the sound of that. <laughs> and and it, and it just sort of re- reassures him, reaffirms it, but gives him the, the strength to, to carry on in that situation. Not to get him out of it, just to, to, do you know what as well I must just say this really quickly now the chemistry between those two when they get to the front door and he says probably best not to mention anything 
Actually, yeah, probably best you don't speak yeah. at all. <laughs> it's really, yeah. really good. And then he gets really in, he can't help it. Just starts talking straight away and then swears his allegiance to Gondor. Peregrine took. <laughs> so funny. You are that, a fool of a took. It's just that, that that I really, really enjoyed those two together. I thought they're amazing. Um, and then one more little bit for me that I just was like, no, I can't do this, is when Aragorn starts singing in the Empire Strikes Back <laughs> ceremony. I was just like, when did Ben Howard get it? Stop this. Like, what? No one, you don't need to sing. And then his missus rocks up. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? What's going on? Stop this. And then and then Frodo does it. Now, this is really crucial for me. Then uh, Elijah Wood does a voiceover and says, oh, and so the, the fourth age of Middle Earth began and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that that is just so, it's, you don't need that. We don't need that. It's so unnecessary because then what happens is this beautiful 20-minute sequence, I think 15-minute sequence, which I loved. And I don't know necessarily whether it was kind of, whether whether I was watching the same film in the same way, but I was really struck by this idea of the four of them sitting at home and sitting there with a pint and all just kind of looking at each other and so much has changed in their life. Mm. But Bag End and Hobbiton has kind of just carried on blissfully ignorant. And it reminded me a lot. I don't know if it's the same for you, but it reminded me a lot of when you finish university and then you come home and you sit there and you kind of look around at all these things that have just stayed completely still while you've been gone for a few years. And then you come back and you you have a pint with your, your mates and stuff and you just go, wow, I've seen how big the world is. You know, I've seen how massive everything is and how you can go and do all these crazy different things. And it almost is at times, and it's, I I don't mean this in in any way, a condescending way. And it's definitely, definitely not anything to do with kind of like, Oh, you've got to go to university because everyone has their own path. But I think there's a lot to do with kind of the idea of waking up and, 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 sort of losing your blissful ignorance and becoming an adult, you know, and then suddenly sitting there and being like, oh, wow, that this is actually now this, this, this world can feel a little bit small because they have literally seen the entirety of Middle Earth, you know? You know, I've seen it kind of like this, these themes about this kind of talked about before, but do you know what, in those sort of moments like you're describing then, sorry to take you to this place, but some people almost sort of say that like death is kind of um, lurking in those moments. You do get these kind of like feelings of mortality when, like you say, when, if you've just been through something or if you've been to another place and you go back to where, you know, or you just catch yourself in those moments of you see people going about their lives, going about their days, doing this stuff sometimes in those quiet moments of reflection you realize this is what it's going to be like after i go when i die i I live this life i live this story there's this start middle and end to my own existence the things that i want to achieve things that you know i would see as making me a success or not um 
But really, outside of that, outside of my own little bubble in my own little head, this little world I've created, there are just people going for a walk, eating sandwiches, having a pint. The birds are outside twittering. The, the water, the streams, you know, the sound of the water going in streams, the wind blowing through the trees, it's all going to be there and it's going to be there after I'm gone. That It just carries on. You know, yeah, everything just carries on. And that's kind of like death is in those little details sometimes, just letting you know that, you know, those quiet moments of reflection that, you know, there there is an end to everything, but things end at different times, you know? Yeah, and wasn't it fascinating that he chose to include us seeing Sam, the guy who we are, that we've been encouraged as the audience to really be on side with and really kind of, I love the simplicity of his, get this done. You know, I said I'd do it, so I'm going to do it. He's the one who seems to be the most at peace with a normal existence when he gets home. Goes up yeah. and talks to the the barmaid yeah. that he's spoken about. Has his two kids, has his little house, carries on with life. And I thought that was a really, really fascinating inclusion because it kind of tells you that for some people that will be that that kind of... They'll, they'll, they never really wanted to go on the quest, but they got dragged into the quest and getting home mm. is the is the win. And then for other people, they kind of thrust themselves into the quest because really Sam didn't choose that. Frodo chose that. And then when the Frodo gets back, um, yeah, exactly. And Frodo gets home and then he's he's like, right, off we go to the Undying Lands. He finishes book and, 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 and he's ready to go with Gandalf and he's ready to go with Bilbo. Uh, and I thought that was really, really... There was three kind of key moments in there that Frodo leaves, that Sam stays, and that Bilbo asks to see the ring one more time. You know, I thought that was such a clever inclusion because it kind of tells you that you you can't shake it out of people's character. You know, even in, in his yeah. old, old age, you just can't quite let it go. You know, just give us one more. Like, just let me just have one more go of being, feeling like the guy, feeling like I yeah. could have power. Which was is quite it? Some, could I? I don't suppose you have that ring I gave you, do you? <laughs> you know? yeah. It would have been nice to hold it one more time. That's just—it's horrible. It's, it's like Charlotte said when we were when we were watching it back. She was like, "Oh, that's hor- It's so sinister, really. It's so, it's but like it's, one of the. It's one of the moments where you really feel the sinister power of the ring. It's horrible, you know. Yeah, but then. Frodo equally I, I mean two two moments where you feel the opposite I thought Frodo kissing Sam on the head like that I almost burst into tears at that I was like that is that is so how rare is it to see in films just two men that are not in a relationship to show each other affection like that like that's a really kind of beautifully done, having seen over the course of three films, that brotherhood building and then both looking after each other. And he just kind of gives him the, the Lauren Blanc, Fabian Barthez vibe. And then just <laughs> kind of, and just they have this really tender and sweet moment. And it's, and it's really lovely. But he also does it to Bilbo as well. It kind of has that thing of Bilbo's seen most of the world, but Frodo's gone that one step further and he goes, you know what, I'll just... I'll just let that one go. 
You know, I'll you, just let that slide. Back on the kind of not allegory, but the fact that it's been influenced by real world things. I feel like there really is a real kind of throw to PTSD here with Frodo and the fact he just can't, you know, like he, he says himself, like some wounds just go too deep, you know, that he's never, he's never going to get over like what the ring did to him and what he went through. Yeah. And I mean that it's quite clever in a way that he sort of pierced with that blade. So you're told from the start, like he's never going to properly heal. Um, but that that also in itself is kind of about the journey, right? He's never going to properly heal from this journey. It's going to he know. I think Galadriel says he realizes the journey will take his life, and and he's still alive. But the journey has taken the life force out of him. He's living life in kind of black and white, yeah. kind of going through an existence again, which is obviously a bit. Um, obviously, which is something that was very much again World War One and World War Two people came back and they were my my granddad was in a uh he fought in world war ii and he was in a bren gun carrier that got hit by a panzer tank um and it was he was six days in to his um six days into his first kind of foray out and he was in a brain that he was in this bren gun carrier that would go out and scout where enemies were and he was hit with a Hit, hit by a, 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 a panzer tank, I think it was, and um, blew up the whole carrier. Everyone around him dead. There was five of them in it. Everyone dead except for him. Got um, taken to hospital. And then while he was in hospital, they heard a plane flying overhead. And that kid, he'd sort of got back. He'd got back home. I think he was in, I think he was in Africa at the time. And he'd got take brought back home, was in hospital, plane flew overhead, and he just dived underneath his bed. God. Just completely without any no one has said anything, just re- reactive thing. He's lying in bed, kind of battered and bruised, and just heard the sound of a plane and he dived under underneath his bed, just shaking. You think, oof, entire generations, both First World War and Second yeah. World War, entire generations of men that were just so unequipped for that. I mean, who is ever shell shocked? Didn't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just and it, I think you do see a lot of. I think I know he sort of said that there's not there's not loads of kind of metaphor in this, but I definitely think if you go back to I think it's the first no, it's the second film where they're walking through the marshes and there's all these dead sort of dead bodies in the marshes that's very much a throw to the idea of trench warfare and the idea of walking through bodies and stuff and having seen all these things you can see frodo's just not able to go back to life he's just not able to go and do his life again he's just the 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 sounds aren't as clean the the pictures aren't as clear everything is just is a bit hazier and he's just kind of ready to go and i didn't really know I, i wondered whether you had a thought on this but no, that the undying lands. Like what are they? Where are they going? Is that what is that saying? From from what I understand, because I I did some I did some Reddit surfing on this to like look into it. From from what I understand, it's it's kind of like a a sort of heaven on earth in a way. Um, right. Okay. 
and it's sort of somewhere where like the the elves can access um the elves all being like immortal beings can live there forever the hobbits will probably have like an elongated life but they won't be immortal they won't they won't stay there forever mm. but what it will do is ease their burden um this is what it seems to be so it's kind of a way to live out the rest of their lives with a sort of a sense of peace um and some people whether or not it's just their interpretation or whether they think it's what tolkien intended but some people do make a kind of a very and i, I can see it um a comparison with suicide you know yeah, with, or, or with, euthanasia or something like that yeah with 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 what's happened especially with like frodo because he's just he is broken you know he he's he's broken and there's seemingly no getting him back from that point um but it's funny isn't it like you touch on there like how sam has the arc of the hero really you know sam at the end of the film he goes through the whole thing he is there for frodo he doesn't get wowed by the power of the ring he spots the bad guy he defeats shellop who we've not even really spoken about that but what a that's a fantastic sort of sequence that whole bit i think and we were talking about you know the concerns of some of the cgi aging i still think that looks brilliant i still feel look great yeah it looks great um but sam you know he he thwarts the spider he goes home he gets the girl he has the kids and the last person on screen is him you know, the book is handed to him and it's for him to continue the story, as they say. And you are like, wow, this is, it almost is the story of Samwise Ganji, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it it definitely brings into focus that end sequence. So I was watching an interview with Peter Jackson who said that he kept every time he got towards the end of something, he just kept saying to himself, enjoy it, enjoy it, it's the end. We're at the end wow. now. Just make sure you enjoy it. And I thought that's actually a really good message. I, I, I've definitely felt that over the last few weeks whilst we've been doing this, because I've been in this kind of really nice haze with it. Like I've been in this mm. really nice place of watching these films, but I've loved so much as a kid and I've now love as an adult and, and I'm, I'm it's completely, like we've said so many times, immersed within it and really jumped into middle earth, middle earth and just kind of head over heels with it. And it's, and I've watched it for over the course of, we've done this over the course of like three weeks, right? So we've been within it for, for quite a while. And it, it definitely made me realise that A, the cast would have had this weird kind of ending thing. Imagine everyone packing up when you've been, like we said on the last pod, building sets for seven or eight months and you've been in a group of people, some of them unknown, some of them in their early 20s and they've been working on it for three years or whatever and suddenly in their mid-20s and they've moved on with their lives and then suddenly they're all getting their planes out of Wellington and all kind of returning <laughs> home, as it were, when you've built a life there with some of these people. I imagine you would, whenever you saw people again at different premieres, awards or whatever, you'd have a similar thing to what people describe um around kind of military experience or stuff stuff like that that you have this shared experience of having yeah. gone for a period of time together and then there's a an, an unspoken i had a similar thing with sorry for the name drop i had a similar thing with jill scott 
and I was talking to her about winning the Euros and just kind of this idea of shared experience that when you see people that you won the Euros with, you kind of speak on another level. And I think I saw that as well a little when, did you watch the Friends reunion? Yeah. And they all got back together again and they all kind of, they were beyond friends. They had a mutual understanding, an unspoken understanding that they could communicate without words, just like looks, emotions, touch, the different senses. They could just convey to each other the importance of the other person in their life without needing to kind of talk through every last detail and, oh, it was this and that. And then you inevitably would go for a pint or whatever and just regale and and go over things. Oh, do you remember when that happened? Do you remember when that happened? I just think it's the most lovely thing. And I think that's probably, I think that's probably one of the best things about having watched these back in that this kind of, it just resurfaced so many old things for me in that, in that Mm. way, it's kind of been like, oh, and I remember going to watch it at that cinema. And I remember going to watch you with this person and I went to see the films of different people as well. You do really have, as the film is coming to an end, you're kind of like, it don't, really does remind you of that, doesn't it? That things do just come to an end. So you've got to really enjoy them. When you're in a sweet spot, they don't come along often. So yeah. when you're in a sweet spot, just laugh it up because like, that's the, that's the good stuff. Do you know what? I've, I've got a confession to make. I've never watched the extended editions of any of these. And uh, I told my mate Phil this the other day, Phil, who very kindly made us the the theme tune for the for BYOB. And he was just like, his immediate thing was just like, I'm so jealous. Because it's oh, like, I've, I've really? almost got another little bit yeah. to go into. But now I've got this weird thing in the back of my head where it's like, I've kind of got this little bit of Lord of the Rings that I still haven't kind of delved into, but just on what you're saying there, if I do watch it, if I if I buy the extended editions now and if I watch them, which I kind of feel compelled to do, but if I do, then it really is over. It's the you know? last of the, it's the, la- it's the last of the Christmas chocolate. Yeah. You don't if you just leave that bit untouched for a bit, you can come back to it. They can yeah. sit there. They can sit there as well. See, this is a joy. Is it? Have you bought them? Have you bought the extended editions? No. Yeah, I'm thinking about the HMVs. They just they remastered it all for 4K in 2021, and apparently it's a really, really nice upscaling. It's a really nice uh, remastering. But you could buy it and just leave it. <laughs> you could buy it and just leave it and just there that can that can you can just have it there for for a rainy You'll be day there whispering to me yeah that just would be <laughs> like incredible that would and i think there is a, there is something quite nice in that it's always nice to have something just a little bit unsaid isn't it like you know it's always yeah. nice to have something just just maybe for for a rainy day um you said something to me that blew my mind about the Academy Awards. Oh, wow, I, yeah. I naturally assumed that the Fellowship of the Ring would have absolutely cleaned up, followed by the Two Towers cleaning up, and then maybe people would be kind of a bit burnt out by Return of the King. But it was the complete opposite, wasn't it? So, what I've read on this is that Apparently there was a kind of, should, should, should we do, let's do what, let's do the awards first of all, 
right? Go on. So with the least Academy, starting with the film with the least Academy Awards, The Two Towers, with two Oscars for Best Sound Editing and Best Visual Effects. The second one, the second lowest, is The Fellowship of the Ring with four Oscars for Best Cinema Photography, Makeup, Score, and Visual Effects. And then Return of the King got 11, um, which was Best Film, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction and Set Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Editing, Makeup, Score, Original Song, um, Sound Mixing and Visual Effects. Interestingly enough, no actor won an Oscar. Nobody affiliated with this won an individual like Actors Oscar um, for Lord of the Rings. But there was some talk that everybody knew it was going to clean up. And because the films were made in such quick succession, they were almost like one film. And so there was kind of that decision made to like, let's just lump all the Oscars on it for the last one. Um, uh... That That's sort of kind of what the Academy, I think, decided to do with this. Hence why there are so few for the other ones. But it still feels kind of harsh, doesn't it? Well, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel necessarily right. The right that was the right way to do. It. I feel like it would probably, if it had been done again now, it probably would have been done. T- like I, I feel like there's probably a few of the individuals that would have been recognised, right? Well, just just so for full context, in two thousand and one, Gladiator swept up at the Oscars, right. Um, in 2002, so when The Two Towers came out, I mean, it's kind of funny, like, really. Um, Some of these, though, this does happen with the Academy Awards, doesn't it? Some of these, you just look at it and you go, how on earth did that that film dominate it? I mean, Ian McKellen was a Beautiful Minds got Best Adapted Screenplay. Halle Berry won for Monsters Ball. Denzel Washington won for Training Day. Um, Jennifer Connolly for Beautiful Mind for supporting. Um, I mean, I'm trying to see what won best film. Ron Howard won for Best Director for A Beautiful Mind. Gosford Park won for Best Original Screenplay. Julian Fellows won. Julian Fellows, wow, won the Oscar. Um, I don't know. So in the... Ian McKellen was no. I mean, there wasn't a single nomination in Return of the King. There wasn't a single nomination for any of the individuals, which is incredible, absolutely incredible. Even cons- some- especially considering Ian McKellen, right? Ian McKellen got one, got a nomination for Fellowship of the Ring, um, but didn't win that. So, and I do think Andy Serkis really should have been nominated. It, it, it's such a unique performance. You know, such a unique performance. I almost feel um, like he would have today. Yeah, yeah, and he he did win, he did win some awards for for he won a, a like digital acting performance award, which is just a bit. I don't know. I I definitely feel like today you're right. He would he certainly would have got a little bit more, and I do feel like actually the 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 order's wrong now. I feel like the two towers actually should have taken the most then fellowship and then uh return of the king but actually yeah. it's sort of flipped on its head um definitely 
Uh, do you know what? I, I, I zip forward a tiny bit because I wanted to ask you before we sort of go on to how you follow something like Lord of the Rings. Do you think this should just be untouched? Do you think this should be preserved and just left alone? In what way? We spoke last week about Harry Potter already in the works, a remake of that. Do you think this is one of those series that no one could do it justice? I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because I guess for like for my lifetime, yeah, I'd like to see it left alone. But naturally, things that there will there will come a point when the story is just lost to a generation of people because it just will not resonate anymore. Um, because it simply just seems too old. It seems too kind of, there are very few, think about, think about the kind of 1920s to 1950s films. There are very, very, very few that still resonate now. You generally want like Citizen Kane is one that's often that stands up. And even then, even then you have to watch it with a bit of a veneer of I'll let this off because it's an old film, you know, yeah. the sensibilities, yeah. the way that even just the line delivery, the way people talk, it kind of alienates you. Um, and this is a story that has brought kind of generations above us, our generation, generations below us so much joy that I would hate to see this cut off to people in 20 30 years time yeah when the, films, when the films were approaching 50 years old fine give it a remake you and i if we're still around <laughs> hopefully we will be in 20 30 years time um we'll watch it and say now nah, wasn't as good as the one i saw you know this was different no, was i'm looking forward to us being those ball bags yeah because it'll we'll have just be- been made by ai as well in the yeah. future, we'll be the know? two the two uh, guys from the Muppets. You know, the granddads in the, yeah, in the gallery yeah, yeah, just yeah. yelling out at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'd be I amazing. Know, throwing popcorn at the screen and stuff. Yeah, like. what a load of our rubbish. <laughs> but uh, in terms of like, do I want to see this like bastardized and turned into like an HBO series or something within the next decade? No, I absolutely, I don't. I don't want to see that because that's just a cash grab. That's all that it I is. I can't imagine. Let them do the rings of power. You know, let them expand that. Let them expand the similarity, the slimmer. Can't how the fuck you pronounce it. Hang on. <laughs> Got to see. This I do now. know what you mean, though. I just don't want to see. For now, having just come back to this, I'm like, leave that, leave that alone. That doesn't need touching. But to be fair, I felt that with Rings of Power, and you said that was quite quite good. So I will, I will have to give that a crack. Silmarillion. There you go. The Silmarillion. <laughs> five hours of podcasting and we've nailed it. <laughs> the Silmarillion, a collection of myths and stories in varying styles by the English writer J.R.R. Tolkien. So let me tell you very quickly what Peter Jackson went and did next. He did King Kong, which was something that a passion project that he just wanted to do. And basically he took the entire group that he could of filmmakers and did it in New Zealand. So he had everyone there finishing at the same time and was like, right, on we hopped King Kong. Um, But I think like anything in life, it is impossible to follow up your greatest ever work with anything. 
Well, what's he really? Know. What's he really done since, mate? Well, you know he I mean? did the the Beatles doc and he did the the World War documentary. Yeah. You know, he did the World War recoloring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's brilliant, actually. To be fair. Um, but but again, I think those are very much kind of passion projects. And and his first love was or first passion was the kind of graphic treatment thing. I mean that that was why part of the reason why they were able to do the things they were with Lord of the Rings because his company were doing the visual effects. Um, the, the Hobbit, I've I've watched a lot. Um, I've watched a lot around the Hobbit, um, and there being a lot of issues around funding, a lot of issues. He wasn't going to direct the Hobbit, um, and then got called in sort of almost last minute because there was a withdrawal of funding there was a change of studio um and you very much can see they had all of the I forget who the original director was um director the hobbit was uh, Guillermo del Toro sorry so Guillermo del Toro had oh that's quite interesting he'd created all of the look and feel design costume how how he wanted everything to appear and then peter jackson almost had to kind of step into someone else's world building and you really feel that i think you really feel that when you watch it you're like this doesn't feel the same this doesn't look the same it feels halfway there and i think that was pretty spot on um he, he directed the lovely bones as well which i i honestly i really didn't like that as a film person not a fan but... i like the soundtrack yeah. i thought the soundtrack was really really good yeah it's one of those that's another great one to work to, to uh talk to me about the new shadow yes the new shadow like uh very briefly, Tolkien, he started mapping out the idea for the fourth age of of Middle-earth. Um, it was going to be set maybe 100, 150 years after the events of the Lord of the Rings. Aragorn um, would have died. And men without the common, like kind of what we were talking about last week with the prosperous peacetime stuff, that men without a common enemy, without a common evil to rally against, actually start to become very listless. Um, and what it was going to lead to essentially was a group of cultists trying to revive Sauron, try to bring him back from the dead and wreak havoc upon Middle-earth again. Um, and then... By all accounts, he got a couple of chapters in, 10, 15 pages or something like that, and was just like, what am I doing? What am I doing? It's the world. He, he's just seen kind of World War One turn into World War Two, and the the world being miserable enough, the world going from calamity to calamity as it was, Middle Earth could just be left in a nice place. Um, he didn't want to do it. He just he he thought it was too miserable. I kind of like that he is able to just that he was able to just be like, nope, cheers, thanks, but no thanks, not doing yeah. this. And I well, but would you want to see it expanded, or would you would you just say leave that alone as well? It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because part of it you're kind of thinking, well, it was the will of the creator of this to not expand it but at what point does somebody's work become bigger than them you know um the will of a man who's been dead for 50 50 years or so 
You know, if his estate, if, you know, Christopher's overseeing stuff, if he enlists a seasoned fantasy writer to take it on, to, you can't say do it in a way that Tolkien would have wanted because Tolkien wouldn't have uh, wanted that at all. Have you ever heard the, um, have you heard the the, uh, phrase ship of Theseus? No, I haven't, please. Do you know so the, I haven't gone full philosophy wanker in an age, in ages, but Please. this is a, it's a good one. Uh, it's basically the idea that if you repaired, let's just say you had a car and the car breaks down and you go, oh, the engine's gone. So you put in a new engine and then, oh, oh the exhaust is gone. Trigger's broom. <laughs> Trigger's broom, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you yeah, went yeah. placing all the parts. At what point is it? no longer the ship of theseus and at what point is it sort of at what point is it the same thing or not the same thing and has the essence been taken from it i often think about that with sorry to go back to football i often think about that with football if you change a stadium and you change the players and you change the manager and you change the the kind of um the training ground and the makeup of everything what is it that makes the a football club a football club but the difference there is kind of history and fans and the, the the feeling, you know. Um, so I think that's probably I think that's probably where Lord of the Rings kind of is, right? Is that you have the history, you have an enormous fandom. I mean, the fact that these guys are still turning out to Comic Con and being paid obscene amounts of money, and and the interest hasn't wavered. Mm. People are still turning up to see them. I think that tells you something about the that the appetite for it. It's just very, very, very difficult to do well. I think Blade Runner 2049 is one of the few things that you could look at and go, some it is possible to go and open up a new story, carefully look at it, and then close it back up again. Whereas Star Wars maybe isn't. <laughs> Dreadful. Like yeah. and, and it, there are more examples of ones getting it wrong than getting it right. Um do you want to do let's do farm on a war crime what what, yeah. what have you got i would say like when i watch this on on reflection like it's tough isn't it because we kind of the the whole narrative in this and we, like we have to bear in mind this is something that was written in the 1950s right it's written by a man who was like I say a victorian man basically um We now, like in our kind of, in our popular culture, in our literature, in a way just we talk about events, the way things are unfolding in the world, right? We don't reduce things down to good and bad anymore. We don't reduce things to good or evil. We don't, we almost don't have that kind of monotheistic lens upon the way in which we interpret the world anymore. Um is the story if 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 we appreciate it purely on the level of it being a fantasy tale swords and sandals as we say which is good fun and there are some nice messages within it yeah we can appreciate the lord of the rings but increasingly as the world becomes more and more complex and more and more complicated and like i say the way in which we interpret the world becomes more sophisticated should we say more advanced I'm not so sure anymore that a tale of good versus evil in as binary a fashion as is on display really in the Lord of the Rings 
has as much relevance anymore. You know, no, the fact no that shades of grey. Orcs are evil, born evil. They don't commit evil acts. They are just evil by their very nature. Do you know what I mean? Things like that. Yeah. Whether or not that's his point leads to very dodgy comparisons being made by people in the real world to real things. So much so that he actually spoke about this. There's some quote of his whereby he's talking about the way in which the Nazis used a lot of Nordic folklore to reinforce their ideas. And it pissed him off because he was like, I he almost didn't want people to jump onto works and things that he was creating in that same way. Um, because he, he described Hitler as like a hooligan and a brute for the things that he'd done and for the way in which he weaponized certain thoughts, certain schools of thought, especially like around folklore. Um, I think like the Nazis were in particular interested in things like Odinism and stuff like that. Um, which gave rise to, you know, the idea of like the Aryans, people born of a higher status, these kind of elven people and all that type of thing. Do stories like Lord of the Rings in some way embolden people that have certain weird ideas like that? Not saying that's Tolkien's intention, but is that a possibility? I think maybe it is. Um, and so I think we always have to kind of reassess the kind of messaging and the kind of imagery that we put out into the world. And now I'm, I love the Lord of the Rings. We've just spoken about this for, you know, probably close to five hours over the past three weeks. So it, it almost pains me to think of it in this way, but I'm just saying, you know, it, as we do in fine wine or war crime, it's not saying this is bad or this isn't bad. We are just trying to apply the lens of the time in which, 2023 last year 2024 now the lens that you know would could we make this now today probably just about but will that last forever i'm i'm not so sure i'm not so sure you wouldn't make it in the same way i know we always say that you wouldn't make it in the same way and as a result i don't think it's the same thing I think if you change it and you, a lot of the reason why we as kids would have loved it would be probably because you would, there would be some like as two young white kids from okay neighborhoods, there would have been some weirdly aspirational thing about wanting to be like Legolas, you know, there'd have been something weirdly kind of like, Oh yeah, I get the bow and arrow going. Like I, you know, you always are like, which one would you be? Oh, I'd be that one, or I'd be that one. I don't think necessarily that would fly now in the same way. Um, and I think, but I, th- I think it's okay that it exists in its encased in its sort of two thousand and two, two thousand and three, two thousand and four. That was life then, you know. It, it's not how things would be now. Um, but it is fascinating. You're right. I, I think there is, there's a lot in there and I wouldn't be surprised to see if it was, if this film was made today, God knows the people that were trying 
jump on the back of it and say, this is about this. This is about this. You know, this is Trump. Yeah. Paramon is Trump and all this type of stuff, you know, yeah. this is what I mean. Like, and I, th- I, I guess this is kind of why Tolkien was so keen to impress on it, not being allegorical because he just wanted people to it's escape, just, yeah. just to escape into, into another world for a bit. Um, but people are always going to draw kind of, you know, draw their own comparisons to things and project stuff onto it. So one thing that I will say, I mean, with, with the except, with the exception of, the diversity in the cast, because it's not a diverse cast at all. It, there is very little diversity in the film at all in terms of the lead characters that are given 99% of the dialogue. With that exception, I will say the casting itself is unbelievable. Like in terms of MVP conversation, you could literally go through you had Sean Bean in, in number one, Viggo Mortensen, you have Ian McKellen, you have Sam Astin, you have Elijah Wood, even Orlando Bloom's casting, you know, he doesn't say a huge amount, but he absolutely looks the part. Liv Tyler, um, so much of it is sensational. Um, But that's me basically saying, can you pick MVP first? Should we do MVP for the whole thing? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Because that, that's what the, the sort of three that I've shortlisted were, were my kind of three for the whole thing. I think I've probably got to go with McKellen. I think the same. I think he is, in all three, I think he's an unbelievable thread to have through the three of them. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the tapestry. Like, he's interwoven throughout the whole thing. And I would say probably doesn't have a bad scene in all of it. No, I think I think really he does a bit of everything, doesn't he? Really good going. Even in this last one where he rides out and holds his staff up and sort of gets rid of the Nazgul. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. He's brilliant. Um, He's brilliant in it. And it's such an iconic performance. It's so iconic, you know. You shall not pass and everything. It's Is this his great is this his kind of goat performance? Has he like I think we've done this before, but this is a lot of people probably say X Men, wouldn't they, or something like that, but X Men possibly, but beyond that, he's 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 a he's a theatre actor, isn't he? Really? Yeah. He's done a lot of stuff, but I mean that's he I saw he was on Graham Norton the other night and I was like, It's Gandalf. You know, that's the yeah, that's yeah. the thing that you attach to. Um, we, we we can save I'm Deeble till next time around, um, but bring the lights down. Where are we going next week? How are you going to follow this up? Well, mate, you know what? We are we're leaving we're leaving Middle Earth, and we're we're leaving kind of blockbusterdom right now. Okay, okay. I thought let's 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 take a step back. Let's take it down a notch. Let's kind of start bringing ourselves back up to speed a bit. So what I am going to do is I'm going to do a film that I think when I speak to quite a few people about it, they haven't seen it. They haven't even heard of it. However, and I'm not trying to do that to be quirky. It was was a pretty mainstream release. It might have been an indie film of sorts, but it has an all-star cast. It has a cast that includes Steve Carell. It's got Juliette Binochet in it. It's got Alison Pill in it. It has Emily Blunt in it. And not to mention Diane West. There's there's plenty more. You, you'll go through it, and when you watch this film, you'll see face after face after face. Um, 
This film is from 2007 and it's called Dan in Real Life. I am, I think this is a, I don't think I've seen this, but the poster for this is him on pancakes, isn't it? It is, yeah. I, and it's been in my mind always, like always, and I've always wanted to watch it. So I, I think I, I, it. Yeah. I don't think I've ever... It's got Dane Cook in it. Yeah. I loved Dane Cook back in the day. Right, here we go. I'm excited, yeah. man. Bit of a time shift, but I thought, you know, come on, we've done, we've done three big blockbusters. Let's just, you know, bring it a bit get, more get human. Get a little niche accent. Action. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, Amazing. It's, uh, it's a lovely little film, I think. So Goodbye, goodbye Middle Earth. It was fun. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>